Welcome to Cinema Joes, where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. I am your host, Alex Marcus, podcast editor for ThePopBreak.com. Sadly, I am not joined by my usual co-hosts, Noah and Justin, but in their place, I am very excited to welcome onto the show one of the hosts of Marvel News Desk, Caleb Borchers. How are you doing today, Caleb? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Very excited to dive in. Uh, to this very exciting episode. Uh, Caleb's nice enough to join us uh, for one of our special flashback episodes where we invite a friend of the show on to discuss one of their all-time favorite films. And for people who haven't bothered to read the title of this week's episode in their podcast player just yet, uh, can you tell us what film we'll be discussing today, Caleb? Yeah, we're going to look at The Big Sleep, and we're really flashing back. We're going to 1946. And Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, it's uh, it's it's way in the way back machine. That's right. It's a classic of the noir genre from all the way back in 46. Um, I would encourage anyone who hasn't seen the film yet to seek it out and watch it before continuing with today's episode. But in case they choose not to, Caleb, can you do your best to break down the broad strokes of this very twisty plot? Yes. So the broad strokes are actually pretty easy. Uh, Humphrey Bogart plays... Um, a detective who a uh, private eye named Marlo, he is brought in by an old man who has two daughters that are always getting into trouble to take care of a blackmail plot against one of them. And as he starts to pull on the threads of what these two uh, women are up to in classic noir fashion, things just fall apart very quickly. Lots of people end up being murdered and it really is him trying to figure out just how many skeletons are in these people's closets. And it really is far too many skeletons, even for a movie like this. It's It gets out of control. And in the subplot to all of it is that he is also falling for the oldest daughter, uh, Vivian. And there is a lot of, uh, this movie is kind of known for the romantic chemistry between Bogart and um, Bacall and sort of their highly sexualized conversations for the era um not by modern standards but definitely for those times yeah yeah definitely it definitely i i think honestly even for modern standards it's a bit racy at times at least for what i would be expecting from a movie like this yeah yeah <laughs> and i think part of it is just their like palpable chemistry on screen too it really heightens the dialogue that is already pretty heightened so that's definitely something that this movie has going for it yeah. um but before we get in too deep on that, I'm curious what made you choose this film to be the one to talk about today. And also, this is my first time watching the movie. And I'm curious, like, what your history is overall with the film. Um, So this was one that I probably picked up. Uh, remember when AFI used to do, like, top 100 lists every year? Yeah. And it was, like, the AFI comedy list. There was one that was, like, I think AFI, like, thrills and chills or something it was very generic it was like horror movies but it was also like like action thrillers and noir like it was all this different stuff and back then i was like it was like late high school years for me and so every time one of those lists came out i would just see a bunch of movies on it to like indoctrinate myself in old movies and i always liked bogart a lot Um, i love the maltese falcon and some of those other type of movies like that but this one really appealed to me because I heard that William Faulkner did the um, the screenplay. And it was at yes. a time I was reading The Sound and the Fury, I think, in high school. And so I was like, a Bogart noir movie that William Faulkner wrote the screenplay to? Like, that just sounded too good to be true. And so I watched it, and I've always liked it. And so I own it. And I've, I don't know, I've seen it four or five times now, which for me is a lot for a single movie. But. Yeah, definitely. I I was shocked to learn that this was written by William Faulkner because I didn't realize that William Faulkner wrote screenplays. And it turns out he's written three. He's written uh, this film and then uh, To Have and To Have Not, which also happens to be the first time that Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall were on screen together. Um, And then also The Road to Glory, which is another uh, Howard Hawks film. So I had no idea that he wrote uh, screenplays and it seems like he's did like a lot of other work in Hollywood um, in this era but the, those were his only three screenplays that he actually got credit for writing so 
Yeah, I think once I found out that it was written by a novelist, the somewhat complicated plotting made a lot more sense. (laughs) Yes, and I don't know, I haven't read the novel, but every time when I'm done with this movie, you know, full warning, I do always go to the internet to go, wait a minute, what did I miss? Because there's just so much. (laughs) And it seems like the novel was even more complicated. Shockingly enough, this is actually pared down for screenplay form compared to, I guess, everything that was in the book, so... Yeah, I can't I can't imagine. I guess you get at least more time probably spent with the characters in the book, and that might make it a little easier to absorb all of the complicated plotting. (laughs) But yeah, so I just one of the things that I'm most curious about is just like your overall relationship with both the noir genre and like how you think this film fits into the genre. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I love generally I love noir is a genre I, I really love the old stuff you know the, the the cinematography and the lighting the way the black and white hits is just really great um but i like some modern ones as well i really love la confidential uh visually i really like i think it's called the man who wasn't there maybe the cohen brothers noir that yeah. was black and white with billy bob mm-hmm. thornton um you know memento i think is a great movie i think that would count as a modern noir in a lot of people's minds absolutely yeah so um, I think what I like about it, there's something that is really true to human nature. Like I, I'm in a career where I work with people and the idea that if you give people 10 chances to do something wrong, they'll do it eight or nine you know, times out of 10. <laughs> like just our human propensity to be tempted with something and go, yeah, I'm going to try that. And I just love that this genre is like, yeah, let's just explore how broken we are as people like that if given an opportunity do something that the viewer goes, that's a bad idea. (laughs) Yeah. We'll do it anyways. You know Um, I think there's something about that. That's, that's really enjoyable. I also just love the, um, I love that they're kind of like very talk focused movies, particularly this Mm -hmm. one. Um, I was thinking how much this reminded me of almost like an Alan Sorkin movie, but like from a long time ago, uh-huh. That like dialogue is what pushes the movie. And I just, I enjoy that. I, I like, you know, that kind of a feel where there's something where, um, where the, the conversations is what pushes as much as showing you, they kind of show it through conversation. I don't know. There's something about that I've always enjoyed. So I like that about this. Yeah. One. I'm also a huge fan of uh, dialogue driven films. I love a screenplay where the characters are just bouncing back and forth and it's just like 10 page monologues and all that stuff. I'm a huge Aaron Sorkin fan as, as complicated as his reputation is nowadays, he's definitely made some of my favorite, uh, favorite films and television shows. So like the social network, the West wing, you know, I mean, just like classic stuff. Um, and I definitely also got a little bit of that vibe here. Like it's, it's a little bit more heightened than even a, a Sorkin script, uh, as you would imagine, but it really just moves so fast. Like, and and I think that what Bogart does in this film that's so interesting is that he manages to come across as this just like quintessential everyman, but he also happens to be smarter and funnier and more capable than anyone has ever been in their life. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think that's just such an interesting balance that he pulls off and it's so engaging to watch. Yeah. No, I was thinking as I watched, like, the way these movies have heightened reality but not is so weird. Because, like, (laughs) there's nothing in it that's fantastic. Like, there's no superpowers. There's no nuclear bombs. Nobody's trying to kill the president. You know, like, it's it's all very down to earth. But nobody is that witty. Nobody is – I mean, the the amount these people smoke and drink – (laughs) Um, the general, I don't know how else to say it, like the general horniness of it, like the people are like constantly flirting and constantly getting into innuendo. It's all like so over the top, but in such a witty way that you just kind of don't care, you know, like it's just, yeah. (laughs) and it's, it's heightened reality in that way. It's very, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. It almost has a Tarantino feel in that way too, right? Like there's just like these people that talk like no one talks, but talks like everyone talks, you know? Uh-huh. And just like punctuated by sex and violence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. Now, I know you like to kind of keep it PG, but this is an extremely horny movie. Like, every person who walks on screen wants to have sex with the other one. Like, it's really remarkable. <laughs> it, it, it's fascinating. But what I find really interesting about it is, I think, you know, we've talked about that on our, our Marvel podcast, that I am, like, Mr. PG. Like, I don't see any need to make an R-rated comic <laughs> movie ever. But part of it for me, though, is that it is so much more, like, I don't know, tantalizing, whatever the word is. To me, it's more interesting when it's it's really verbal and it's really two people connecting. Like, sure. I don't know. Anybody can film a scene with people throwing their clothes off, but not anybody can do the horse race scene that these two do. Like, it yeah. really takes actual chemistry to do it. And I think that's what I find fascinating about it and why I find more sort of illicit movies nowadays just to be boring because they don't – I don't know. It seems like they take the cheap – the cheap way there in the same way that some of these um, like the Manchurian candidate has unbelievably scary violence without being graphic violence. Right. And I think this is the same way. It's very sexual situations without being graphically. So, and that to me is just interesting. It takes a lot of skill to do that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, that's the power of, of like super, movie stars too like when you have someone like Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall like what they can convey with just a look is more potent and and captivating than like what anyone could convey by taking off all their clothes you know like there's just so much like power in the intimacy that the two have together and that was real like because you know these two were actually engaged in a pretty illicit affair on the set of this film uh that ended up breaking up humphrey bogart's marriage so i don't know if you were aware of that but <laughs> i didn't know that but it, it makes sense i mean it, yeah. it doesn't surprise me yeah and uh bacall ended up uh marrying him shortly thereafter and i think was his fourth and final wife so uh, he he had a bit of a reputation for being a womanizer, but um. <laughs> I do find it fascinating. He has like a he's got like a Sean Connery Bond thing going. That uh-huh. Every person who sees him is like, oh, he is so attractive. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm the worst person to judge this, but like, <laughs> I don't know. Like Bogart does not. He just doesn't have a Brad Pitt quality to him, you know, like a modern sure. movie star. But I guess I don't it's, know. A handsome man it, was something different back then, I guess. <laughs> It's all charisma. Like, if you just had a still photo of him at the grocery store, I think you would not really remark upon him at all, right? Like, he just there's right. nothing particularly remarkable about him. He's just, like, you know, an okay, average-looking guy. But what he brings to the screen is just so powerful and charismatic that, yeah, you just can't help. It's like a tractor beam. You just get, like, sucked into his atmosphere and that's what like every single woman in this film and they throw so many women at him in this film (laughs) and they all kind of just get like sucked in and the thing that's fun about lauren bacall's character is that she's the one who kind of like gives it as good as she gets it unlike some of the other women who just kind of are you know uh flabbergasted by him and just taken in by him even begrudgingly you know like i think about like the scene with him in the bookstore clerk yeah and that's just where it's just like the two of them going back and forth and she just completely folds. And then she gets so angry later when she realizes what was really going on. But it's like you could tell she's angry most at herself for getting taken in by this guy. But he's just so powerfully charismatic. She can't help herself. It's it's yeah. a very fun dynamic. And the, the female taxi driver who like flirts with him and is like, <laughs> if you need me, you know, yeah. here's my number. And in a modern movie, that would be like a setup for a plot point down the road. Uh-huh. In this movie, no, it was just her flirting with him. He never calls the yeah. cab again, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just to set up, it's to flesh out the world. And this particular world is, it's just Humphrey Bogart. It's several men with guns. And it's a dozen beautiful women at every turn who want to have sex with Humphrey Bogart. And that's just the whole, that's the whole world that the movie inhabits. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, and like I said earlier with like noir as a genre, there is something thematic about that of like, you know, people are going to make bad decisions and people aren't, you know, prone to get into relationships they probably shouldn't get into. Like, um, I find that it's a cynical kind of view of the world. And so I don't want to live there, but it's an interesting place to visit, you know. Yeah, well, it's that kind of like mid-century American puritanism of like there's temptation at every turn and every uh, force can corrode your soul if you give it 
if you let it in through the front door, you know, like that's kind of a huge part of the noir genre. Like yeah. I know uh, having seen some of the films myself and like uh, done some reading on it, a big way that this uh, developed as a film genre was this idea of these men coming back from the war, specifically World War Two, and they've witnessed these atrocities and they can't really reintegrate into society because they now see what the truth of the world is in a way that they didn't while before they left for the war and now they're walking through these empty cities looking for some sort of purpose some ability to have this redemption and they're constantly being thwarted by these incredibly attractive women and incredibly dangerous like mobsters yeah <laughs> i know another another film that i actually saw last year for the first time uh fritz lang's human desire have you ever seen that one Mm-mm, i have not that's really excellent. It's a really excellent noir, and that really kind of captures that whole essence in, like, one singular movie. It's basically, like, this guy, he comes back from uh, the war, he moves to a new town or whatever, and he's, like, looking for work, and he gets caught up with this woman who says she's being abused by her husband, and she wants him to kill her, kill him for her, and it just kind of goes from there. And it's uh, yeah. it's definitely sort of like a dark window into a a cynical worldview for sure (laughs) but incredibly beautiful and like the film the cinematography of all of these films are just so wonderful and you really kind of like the black and white i know some people i know some people who will who say like oh i won't watch any movie from night from anything older than 1980 because then it just looks terrible and i can't watch a black and white movie because it does it looks ridiculous and like you can't feel connected to the people and it's just like there's so much beauty to the black and white film uh, cinematography on display here that I just wish more people would be open to it. I love that this is one of your favorite movies because, you know, you have, obviously, people know you for being a huge Marvel fan, and this is just such an interesting departure from that whole genre. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, it's interesting. I, I was also amazed by the um, the rain. I, I think this movie takes place in California, and so mm-hmm. the, the scene where it rained, I was like, good gracious, that's more rain, you know. Uh, <laughs> That's more water than's fallen on California in the last decade, but it like has that whole ambiance, you know, like the lightning and the the rain and uh, the black and white. It's just, yeah, I feel like it gives mood so much better than a lot of movies do nowadays, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Now I have a question that I have. We've talked a little bit about uh, Bogart and about Bacall. How do you feel about Martha Vickers in this film as Carmen Stenwood, who is kind of uh, Vivian's younger sister and who is constantly seen sucking her thumb uh, seductively yeah. <laughs> throughout the film? So she seems kind of she seems kind of like a cartoon character at times. Yeah. Um, and to me, I mean, for me, a lot of that is just the heightened reality. Like she's supposed to be like a rich, spoiled you know, young woman that's never had to like, you know, have any responsibilities. So I think that's where that comes from. I think near the end of the movie, there's a suggestion that she's like legitimately maybe mentally ill though as well, you know, like she's not yeah. well. Or at and, least it's some sort of drug addict at the very least. Some, like yeah. someone with a substance abuse problem. And so I don't, I, I think I don't think it's great. Like, it's certainly not like a uh, a, a triumph of feminism the way she's portrayed <laughs> in this movie. I think the flip side is how do you portray someone who's who's not doing well, that's maybe has a drug issue? You know, like, I think in modern cinema, like, they would kind of show her a little more as maybe someone who's sort of strung out and having a hard time. I just yeah. don't know in 1946 if there's like a language for that, you know, like if there's a way to do that in a way that audiences are okay with, because there's a lot of things that this movie does not totally talk about that. When you read about the book, you go, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like the bookseller that doesn't know anything about selling books. It's because he runs a pornography ring, but Uh, that's not explicit ever in the movie. You no. know that he owns a bookstore and he doesn't know how to sell books and you know that he has a hidden camera in his bedroom. But apparently in the book, it was really clear that like he was running a smut ring or whatever. Like, uh-huh. and I just, those are the kinds of things that a 1946 movie doesn't feel like they can make real clear. I think there yeah. may be a, a gay character or two in the book that 
they kind of blunt that so you don't you can't tell totally sure. in this, you know. Well, so. and also a movie like this is coming out of a specific cultural context, the way that any movie does, right? So yeah. I think that there's some winks and nods to things like that bookstore situation where people of the time probably would be way more clued in to what they were referring to than someone now might be. So I think there's also a part of that. Like so much of this era of Hollywood is about like letting the innuendo and the winks and the nudges kind of skate around all of the censorship that was going on because, you know, for the early period of Hollywood's history, uh, there was a lot more kind of daring and uh, provocative filmmaking. And then they there was major fear that the government was going to come in and censor them. So, you know, they in- issued the Hayes Code, where they had all of these incredibly restrictive policies in tor- like for self-censorship. So that way the government didn't sen- come in and censor them. Right. Um, and what you end up having is just a lot of sort of talking around things that yep. especially people at the time would have probably been clued in on where now if you watch it it's like you're it's like 50 50 whether you're going to even get what's happening right and so i wonder if there's some of that for carmen as far as like if like she was being 1946 drug addict you know Uh and like that that to us looks sort of two-dimensional but maybe would have made more sense i don't know yeah like there's a scene where he where marlo finds her right after there's been a shooting in this place and she's there and she's kind of like out of it in a very kind of cartoonish way. And, uh, there's some implication of there being a video. There was cameras of some sort that was hidden and then someone else has the footage. And eventually we come to learn that like, she is aware of this and does not want that footage to be seen. And the implication is at that point, pretty clear what would be on that footage. Um, But yeah, I'm curious, like, what you think about that scene, how that plays now versus, like, what the intent probably was. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's like I said, it's not it's not something that would be done that way today. You know, like, yeah. I think it um, she's certainly a character that doesn't have a whole lot of agency about her. It, it's no, hard, but really. that's it's she just show up with a gun at one point to demand true. the yeah. tape back. So that was a. That was nice to see some self-advocacy at least. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, definitely. I mean, she is, she's the character that feels, I think the least real, you know, like she's the one that feels uh-huh. most like um, some kind of stereotype from a bygone era. I, I think for sure. Yeah. It does present a good contrast though. Again, not the, in the most feminist way, but a good contrast for the Vivian character played by Lauren Bacall, because uh, she is so cunning and so uh, like on top of things and so charismatic and in command of every room that she's in. And thinking about her being the sister to this other character is very interesting and kind of, especially, you know, the fa- you get to meet the father and he is this kind of uh, once powerful, but now infirm man who doesn't really seem to have any kind of control over the world around him. And he has these two daughters and they present such an interesting contrast and you wonder like what that what that life that Vivian has been living and of course what I think is interesting is a lot of the plot kind of hinges on Marlo kind of being a step behind her for a while um yeah and I feel like you could have played the Vivian character as more of a kind of like sultry seductive kind of character who then is revealed to be this mastermind figure um, but really, but they don't choose to go down that road. She is so kind of in command from the second that you meet her. So you're never surprised to learn that she's 10 steps ahead of Marlowe at any turn. And that yeah. somehow works even better than if it were this big surprise halfway through the movie. Well, and it's, it's what they, I think they build the chemistry between her and Marlowe on is that since he is a man that everyone throws themselves at in this movie, she's the one that's kind of not as affected who's uh-huh. like, yeah, whatever. Like she at least plays it cool around him. And I think that's why he likes her. Like that. She is smart that she's not one of these bimbos that is all like, like around him in the movie. So I, I think that's there. Um, you talk about the sisters. It's a really weird reference, but it kind of reminds me of like um, white Christmas. 
Like you have like the older like mom sister that like is taking care of the little sister and the little uh-huh. sister's just kind of carefree and doesn't I mean this is a far more twisted version of that but <laughs> yes. there's a little bit of that dynamic of like mama hen who makes sure everything gets taken care of and baby chick who's just living her life, you know, free and wild. So Yeah, yeah, it definitely is playing within an established archetype, but I do, I do think this is a really great example, at least for the elder sister, you know, because she is, she's strong without ever being shrillish, you know, like she's stern without ever being cold, and I think that that's a really interesting balance that Bacall really nails. It's similarly complex to the Humphrey Bogart character, where we said, like, he is so relatable and affable, and yet so in command and in control and so much better than any other version yeah. of the everyman that you would be able to relate to, right? Like someone who is this smart, this like capable should be kind of alienating or at least aspirational to the audience, but instead you feel so connected to him. And I feel like for her, she should be a very unlikable character based on the things that she does in the film and the way that she would normally be presented, but she brings so much kind of empathy and and uh, and charisma to the role that you're just really engaged with her the whole time and you never feel like she's kind of this like man-hating manipulative monster you know <laughs> yeah absolutely and one of the things I noticed with him throughout along those lines is just that throughout the movie he doesn't like it's weird he is so comfortable being around a dead body or breaking into somebody's house. Like he's clearly a guy who's seen some stuff. Yeah. But he never really crosses lines. Like he doesn't do anything all that untoward. He's just comfortable being around other people who are so Uh much show that when he actually does have a moment later in the movie where he has to do something violent, I was like, Oh, like there was something a little startling to me about that moment because he's not shot anybody yet, you know, like yeah. everybody else is whipping around guns and slapping people around and shooting people in the back. But he they clearly give him a moral code that's not a Boy Scout kind of thing. But it's like he's the he is the like moral rascal compared to the immoral, you know, like everybody's yeah. a little messed up in this movie, but he's clearly got a sense of of ethics and a code of honor that is, um, it, it feels a lot like what you'd expect, like in the mafia. Like if you listen to uh, podcasts about like mafia culture, that there was like a, a, an ethic. Like there's certain things you do and don't do, and it's not what normal people think is right and wrong, but it is a code in, unto itself, you know. Yeah, well, and this is kind of before the anti-hero really became a prominent fixture in Hollywood filmmaking. And so you kind of can't have him let his, get his hands too dirty in this muck, right? He has to be sort of the one virtuous person in a sea of unvirtuous people. But yeah. it's interesting that, like, as you say, like, he still kind of feels of this world. He doesn't feel like this kind of, like this angel walking among devils right like he doesn't feel like a man who's even tempted by this like in a way a lot of noir uh protagonists are where it feels like they're they're wrestling with their soul they're wrestling with their demons through going into the kind of lion's den to just throw every metaphor i can at the conversation (laughs) but here but he doesn't feel like he's he feels like he knows exactly who he is and exactly what his limits are and he knows what's right and what's wrong and he feel and he's able to walk that road um while being very while feeling of a piece with all of these much more nefarious types and i think that is very interesting as well it's kind it's almost uh, remarkable that they that they make him be both a virtuous figure and a figure that feels so lived in in this world at the same time. Um, but one other thing that I think is interesting about everything that we've been talking about so far is just the fact that like I don't know I I, I found that about halfway through the film and this is a bit of a long film it's it's a solid two hours. Um, and halfway through, I just noticed that he was just constantly right next to, like, incredibly severe crimes, right? He's either just, like, coming right after they've occurred, or he's witnessed them and is the only one there when the police come. And, like, I was just, I couldn't help but think, like, if this was real, right, like, if this was real life, 
this man would just be arrested constantly and just go to jail like immediately because right. just like he's just constantly implicated in all of these incredibly serious <laughs> crimes and it's just like well but everyone knows philip marlowe so they know that he's not responsible and they just take his word for it that the guy who did it just ran off <laughs> it's yeah. just like sort of wild because there's so many instances of that throughout yeah. the film my favorite one, there is a moment where he's talking to an officer and he's like trying to pin a murder on someone. Legitimately, they did it. Yeah. And he's like, oh, here's their gun. And he hands it to the cop. Uh-huh. I'm like, your fingerprints are all over that gun. It was in your pocket. But the, the cop's just going to accept that it was yeah. theirs, you know? So definitely, there, there certainly is like a, him and the police officer have almost like a Batman, Commissioner Gordon kind of thing. Where it's like. <laughs> yes. Oh, we know that this guy's on the up and up. So even though he runs around in a bat suit and beats the tar out of people in alleys, eh, it's okay because we're friends, you know. Yeah. And there is, there is that kind of thing. I do like the the pier scene. There is a moment where the cop at least takes a moment to go, "You, you didn't kill that guy, right? Like we just <laughs> fished a body out of the water. That wasn't you." And he's like, "Come on, that's not me." And it was almost like a, if I killed him, you know, I wouldn't kill him that way. Like that was almost the way <laughs> yeah. the conversation went down. So definitely, um, the the police department I don't think is super uh, on the up and up, but I, I think there's some police reforms <laughs> that need to happen in the world of uh, yeah. It's it's a little. It really it does kind of feel a little bit superhero-y where it's like well but we know that he didn't do it because he's the hero of the story so yeah. obviously he didn't and it's like yeah but like you don't know that this is a story right you're just a person in the world right. so you don't know he's the hero but it seems everyone knows that he's the hero in the story so <laughs> but, but it is i mean the whole thing starts because like he can't work for the police because he's too much of a rebel but the police are like actively like sending his resume to people who need a private investigator, you know, like that's, yeah, that's part of that weirdness, I think. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's that whole idea of like, that's, that's the one thing that's a little bit transgressive about this world that's being presented in this film is the idea that like, he's almost more of a like source of justice than the police are capable of being right so there's it's a subtle implication but i think a clear implication that like the system is is more corruptible than philip marlowe right so the system can't be relied upon to give justice but philip marlowe can right the system is either maybe it's because they're corrupt maybe it's because they're naive right maybe like the the critique is vague enough that you can kind of place it any way you want so it doesn't really feel political but there is that sense of like there's a couple of scenes one in particular where he's talking to vivian and he's saying like well if if this was all if this is what was going on then you would just call the police and tell them that this was what was going on and but you're having me you're calling me instead and it's like this idea of like well the cops are just going to come and they're going to wrap up whatever is going on they're not going to ask further questions they're going to dig deeper but philip marlowe he's worldly enough he's and virtuous enough that combination that crucial combination to dive deeper and not settle for the easy outs and just like really get to the bottom of what is an incredibly complicated plot that i'm going to be honest i don't i still don't feel like i fully understand (laughs) no i mean one of the things i love about this i forget i'd have to look it up it's either faulkner or the original novelist was asked about the the guy who ends up um, in the car in the lake or in the ocean or whatever. Yeah. And they just go. People ask like, you know, you never make clear who who did that murder. And the response from again either the novelist or Faulkner was, oh, I don't know. <laughs> like they they're like it doesn't matter. Like it's it's really and there are there is like a red herring thing that happens a lot in this movie where there's people who get murdered for reasons that really are part of Marlowe's challenge is getting through the weeds to get to like what really matters. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of weeds and they're very high. <laughs> yes. And so, and this is the thing that I love about this movie, but I'm sure some people hate about it. I love that it's thick and it's fast and they don't give you any, like you really have to like, it is not something to watch in the background. Like you have got to be yeah. mentally cued in <laughs> and they introduce a lot of characters just by their name. And then they'll like bounce back to them, you know, 25, 30 minutes later. And you're like, Oh, wait a minute. He was, which one? Like 
that complexity, I, I don't know why I love it. Like, I just think it's really exciting. I find it mentally stimulating. Like I enjoy that. They don't want to hold your hand. Yeah, absolutely. It's very chewy, right? It, it really, I'm sure it rewards repeat viewing. Um, yeah. so and you've said you've watched it a number of times, so I'm sure like every time you watch it, you feel like you get a better sense of, of things and you're like, and make connections, right. That you maybe weren't making firsthand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Partially, too, and, you know, I keep talking about, like, modern movies. For better or worse, modern movies have gotten so much better about they don't want you lost in the plot. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of movies nowadays, like, you kind of see where plot stuff's coming because you're like, oh, that's the third time in conversation that they've mentioned this thing (laughs) that's an important plot point they're probably going to bring up down the road. Um. And, and it's to make movies more intelligible, to to make them you know more entertaining. I think I don't think it's bad. I just kind of enjoy a movie where they're like, no, we're not going to hold your hand. Like, pay attention. Um, yeah. In some ways, it's uh, it sounds silly, but uh, it reminds me of the first Mission Impossible. I think the Brian De Palma one. Okay. There's a lot of things in that movie where they drop a name or they drop a hint. And later on, they pick it up and you go, oh, geez, I did not pay nearly enough attention, <laughs> you know, in this dialogue piece that happened 45 minutes ago. And I just I find that uh, I don't know, I just find it fun. And I love that this movie, there's just not they don't mess around like a lot of old movies. There's like these long, slow establishing shots or like, you know, the character looking off into the distance or this movie, like it starts off with Marlo meeting his new client. And then it's just boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And I, that's what I love about it is it's like a relentless pace, you know? Yeah, and it's both the pace of the plot, of the story, and it's the pace of the individual scenes are moving really quickly as well. So it's very dense, but it moves really fast. So you are, you're constantly stimulated. Um, but I, I also think that one of the advantages that a film like this has that some other films that can be kind of complicated might lack is that it is anchored by these two incredibly charismatic movie stars who you just want to watch. And you could watch this film without really being able to attend to any of the plot twists and red herrings and every, and who's this and what do they want and just be sucked into this relationship that Bogart and Bacall have. And that is enough to kind of carry you through the film as well. And I think that that is sort of, that's something that a great film has, right? It has the ability to kind of appeal to a lot of different types of people by giving multiple ways into a story because yeah. then you can really navigate it on on multiple levels. And it also rewards repeat viewing too because like on if you watch the first time, you're watching for this romance, right? Second time, you watch for the plot. Third time, you watch to kind of see how the two connect to each other, right? And it just becomes this kind of rewarding and enriching process. Yeah. I imagine like the executives who made this movie way back in the day, you know, just if they were talking about it as like sort of demographics, like, Oh, this will get everybody. It'll it'll get the guys in for the murder mystery and it'll get the ladies in for the romance, you know, like, yeah, (laughs) just those like, then that's obviously overly stereotyped, but like you can watch it really both ways. Like you can watch it for will him and her end up together and you can watch it for who committed that murder and how did they get away with it? You know? Yeah, all of those murders. Um, <laughs> now, were now let me ask you this though: Were you rooting for the two of them to get together? That's interesting question. I don't know if I thought about that really. So, part of me, you know, I, I think I referenced Bond earlier. Like, part of me assumes that even uh-huh. if they get together six months from now, it's not going to work out because <laughs> they're just, you know, like they're too much of a mess of people. Like, this isn't forever after. Yeah. So. Um, I think there is something appealing about sometimes these kinds of movies will have like, all right, this is my last job and then I'm getting out. And I, there's not like that, that kind of a discussion in this movie, but I think there is something that you cheer for as far as they've been neck deep in this. And I would really like it to be resolved enough that they could just get a cup of coffee tomorrow and not be like, playing this like elaborate spy game with each other and not have to worry about someone, you know, shooting them in the back or whatever. Like the idea that they might get a little piece, I think you cheer for. Um, 
And I think you also cheer for, by the end, the person who really is the ultimate bad guy, if there is such a thing in this movie. Like, you do want him to go down because he is a jerk. And there's something they do about two-thirds of the way through that's really, like, the ultimate evil that really gets Marlowe really worked up. And you uh-huh. do want to see justice for that, I think. And they both, they both, you know, he wants to bring that person to justice and she wants to be out from under their thumb. And I think you cheer for that for sure. Sure, that makes sense. Now, speaking of the resolution in that in that closing scene, how do you feel about the way that that resolves? Where he kind of trick, where like Marlowe basically tricks the bad guys goons into shooting him for that for him. Like, how do you feel about? Is that a cop out or is that just like a very ingenious way of being the hero? You know. Yeah, I mean, so to me, that plays a little bit into that whole um, weird system of ethics we talked about, Uh right? Like, he's going to get justice, but he's not going to do it himself. Um, I can't believe I'm making another bat. It reminds me of Batman Begins, like, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. Yeah. You know, like, I think there's that that vibe to it, which to me makes sense for this character. Uh, Yeah, well, and not to interrupt you, but to say... I think that it's telling that you keep going back to Batman because it is notable that Batman is a character that derived from the kind of noir uh, pulp detective genre of fiction of that era. And he's definitely been influenced as his character has progressed along that sort of life cycle of the noir and neo-noir genres in in Hollywood. So I think it is actually a pretty uh, accessible reference point for a lot of people who maybe don't know a lot about the noir genre of films, but obviously have a lot more awareness of Batman. So I think that's actually a really good uh, comp that you're making. Yeah. Even if some film critics might be very upset to hear that. (laughs) Well, I think thematically again the way i understand a lot of noir it's like there is sort of a um there is sort of a karma thing about it like if you do bad stuff ultimately it's gonna come back around to you and so the way the movie ends kind of does that to the main bad guy of like yeah he you know he, he he rolled the dice just one too many times and finally somebody outsmarted him and he had it coming because of all the stuff that he, you know, all the bad stuff he put out into the world finally came back around to him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it is, and it is notable, at least, that, like, the plot that Marlowe kind of, like, subverts is a plot to kill Marlowe himself, right? So it's kind of like he's turning it against against the bad guy um, in a way where it, it that also, I think, makes it a little bit less of a, like, oh, so he just got his, he just tricked a bunch of guys off camera to kill him off camera, <laughs> you right. know, where it's like you could see that feeling a little anticlimactic. But it, I think that in, in the moment it kind of feels exciting. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense of, like, one of the two of us is going to die when we walk out that door. And so it it almost becomes self-defense. I mean, it's not technically self-defense, but it's, you know, it's, it's not far. Yeah. It's, it's Batman begins where Ra's al Ghul is like stuck in that train that's about to fall and Batman doesn't save him. Right. It's like that sort of thing. It's like you came up with this plot. You're to destroy everyone else. And now I'm not going to save you from the plot that is, as it turns on you instead. So yeah. I think that's like a very classic sort of structure for these sorts of stories. Yeah. And so I think that's something that with this movie and noir in general, like, I mean, we've talked about it, I think, in different ways, but the fact that they are, they have a moral vision within an incredibly immoral, like, world mm-hmm. that somehow it still says something about what's right and wrong and what we can and can't do. But not in a way like you can't accuse it in any way of being Pollyanna because clearly all these people have their hands dirty. And I just I find that ambiguity so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Before we wrap up, I was curious. This film was directed by Howard Hawks, who's Academy Award nominated director. He's he's a prolific uh, filmography that includes the original Scarface, Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Rio Bravo. Have you seen any other films by Hawks? Is he a filmmaker that you've been that you've investigated? So I haven't seen a ton of his stuff. The one that I really love, which is kind of random compared to this, is Bringing Up Baby. 
So I really love the old screwball comedies, Bringing Up Baby, It Happened One Night, uh, Philadelphia Story. Sure. And I think there is, the, uh, where they're related is the way we talked about the way dialogue pushes those movies, right? Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are movies, again, where instead of um, like a murder plot, it's the comedy is really just pushed by dialogue. And again, it's, it's absurd, but not so absurd that it's like, you know, like you can still empathize with characters. So I really love bringing up baby. It's one of my, uh, it's one of my favorites. It's a really good one. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually, I've never seen it, but I've heard really great things about it. And I love that sort of, as I said, that sort of dialogue driven kind of back and forth witty repartee. So it's definitely on my list to catch up with. Yeah, and you know, with bringing up baby it, again, it's just his his job's made easy. Like bringing up baby, you got Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. Like <laughs> you throw almost anything at them, and they'll do a fine job. You know, like the two of them will will take care of business for you. So yeah, absolutely. Now, if anybody happened to listen to like watched this film to listen to this episode and are looking for recommendations for similar films that you like for similar reasons. Could you uh, give us any? Yeah, sure. So um, I mentioned Maltese Falcon. It's a little more, I think, straightforward, but, you know, it's it's a classic um, Bogart uh, film noir. Uh, Double Indemnity is another great one. I think that's Jimmy Stewart as well, um, yeah. which, uh, you know, it's just it's a very similar, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I actually more... saw that in um, in L.A. in September. They have this kind of like famous repertory theater, the New Beverly, and they did a double feature of The Big Sleep and The Double Indemnity um, on the okay. same night. So Awesome. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That would be really good. Um, and so, yeah, I would say those would be good. You know, if you want something more modern, um, I mentioned Memento. Uh, I think... So again, this is a weird comparison. What I like about this movie is what I like about a lot of Christopher Nolan movies is that plot is really thick and dense. So whether it's Memento or it's Inception or it's Tenet, like I feel like it does a similar thing to my brain. And so, um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So I like those, um, this movie a bit more fun than Memento. I'll say though. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. A as, a, as a big fan of Memento, Memento's not, yeah. not, doesn't have a ton of witty repartee. <laughs> no. Um, LA Confidential is another modern one that has, is a great noir. I, I, modern though. I mean, it's 25 years old now, yeah. I, I think. So I don't know if it counts anymore as modern, but, um, so those, and then, um, you know, and we just talked about it, you know, like, something that's of the era that's a different genre but has a similar sort of dialogue quality to it would be uh, Bringing Up Baby, It Happened One Night. Um, I don't know if I'd count it. Arsenic and Old Lace is another one that I really love. And it's it's good that it's also really just dark and twisted and weird. And so (laughs) it's a great Halloween movie. This probably will come out after Halloween, but if you want a spooky movie... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's fine. If you want a good spooky movie, though, in a way, um, it's another one that's it's uh, people are just, you know, it's a jabbery movie. I don't know how to put it. And I, I enjoy that one. But I think that, yeah, that's some options. Well, that's yeah, that's a solid like 25 movies, I think, that you recommend it. So <laughs> keep our listeners busy. <laughs> but OK, I think that's going to do it for us for today. Thanks, Caleb, for coming on. I really appreciate yeah. it. Got to have you come on for a for a, a new release uh, conversation sometime soon. Yeah. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to me and Caleb talk about one thing for a long time, uh, you might want to check out um, an episode on Pop Break TV's "Goodbye to All That" uh, back from uh, last spring, where we reviewed *WandaVision*, uh, the first and probably only season of that, um, and we kind of reviewed that like right after it aired. So we were kind of still in the mix of all of the sort of reaction and backlash and backlash to the backlash and everything. Yeah. <laughs> so. That was a fun conversation, though. I feel like our opinions on the on the show have kind of held and stood the test of time yeah. since then. It's it's funny, you know, when you ask this and I bring up like a 1946 movie. It also I was thinking about us talking about WandaVision. That's why I loved the first couple episodes of WandaVision is because they were more from like this era 
yeah. and stuff. Like I, I enjoy stuff made between 1940 and 1960 a lot more than I like things made between 60 and 80, you know, like I just sure. enjoy this era of stuff. So. Yeah, well, and that's one of the best things about this project that we've been doing where we've been asking uh, friends of the show to come on and talk about their favorite movies because it's never what you expect, right? Like we all, like we had this um, a person on who is a, he has a horror podcast, George, um, best, horror, uh, best horror house in Philadelphia is the name of his podcast. Okay. And uh, and so, you know, I said, like, oh, what's your favorite movie? Like the literal premise of his podcast is basically to ask other people to come on and talk about their favorite horror film. So I'm convinced that he's going to come up with a horror film. And instead he said Paddington, too, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and that was great. And it was an excellent episode. So, you know, and I was so happy to watch that. Um, But, yeah, you never know what people are going to say. And that's and it's really it's an exciting way to kind of dive a little bit deeper past their public personas to see what really moves them. So. Happy that I got the chance to do that with you. Um, If people want to see more of or hear more of your work, where can they find you on the Internet? Yeah, um, MarvelNewsDesk.com. Also, all your podcast apps, Marvel News Desk. We have a YouTube channel that we put the video recordings up a while later. Like, Patreons get them right away, and then we put them up months later. And those are unedited, so they are worse and also better in some ways but yeah <laughs> youtube dot, uh, i don't i don't know if you can find it that way marvel news desk and youtube will get you there so got it um and this will be coming out in december so do you want to like preview anything that's coming around the pike for for your stuff around that time yeah so marvel news desk will be uh we'll be talking about spider-man no way home in december for sure Cannot we'll be wait. going through hawkeye at that point as well so we've kind of gotten to where we did a bunch of shows with no content last year. And this year it's like, if there's not a new movie or show coming out, we won't, you know, like we'll just wait till <laughs> stuff comes out. So we'll definitely yeah, you, be talking about No Way Home a bit. You put in your time of just kind of like, well, there was this one random internet rumor. We're going to talk about it for 20 minutes, even though we don't think it's real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, I want to give a chance to uh, plug some of my co-hosts' work. Um, If you want to hear more from Justin, uh, you can go on to thecinemaverick.com or follow him at thecinemaverick on Letterboxd. Uh, If you want to follow Noah's work, you can follow him at Noah France on Twitter, or you can go to francenoir.blogspot.com for his film reviews and his uh, uh, fan fiction that he's been writing about uh, Star Wars, uh, the return of uh, whatever. What was the last star wars movie that was terrible um <laughs> uh rise of skywalker rise of skywalker that's right yeah so uh, noah hated rise of skywalker so he decided to write a, a fiction um book basically on his blog um that does it better than what they came up with for the movie and it's pretty good so you should check that out as well yeah. Um, if you want to follow my work, you can follow me at Media Thinkings on Twitter or Letterboxd. Uh, you can head on over to thepopbreak.com and click on the podcast link to check out all of the podcasts that I'm supervising as podcast editor. We have a couple of different feeds uh, that you could subscribe to, the aforementioned Pop Break TV, uh, where I host a monthly show called TV Break. Um, and uh, many other uh, really great people are on there doing their shows. Uh, we also have the Breakcast uh, that you can re- subscribe to and uh, Socially Distanced and a few others. So definitely check out all of that stuff. If you want to follow the show, you can follow at Cinema Joe's on Twitter. And uh, definitely stay tuned to see what we have coming up. We put out episodes every other Thursday for the most part. Uh, so, yeah, really looking forward to the future we're going to have a lot of uh the best of the year content some cinematic uh resolutions like we always do so stick stay tuned for that it's gonna be fun uh but in the meantime thanks so much caleb for coming on and uh everyone else we'll see you next time